long-time missionary to uh, the South Pacific Island nations there and been working there for years. In fact, uh, Brother Joe and his wife Marty went and uh, participated in that mission work so many years ago. We appreciate them doing that. We're glad that this family is here with us. Now, my, my experience in mission work wouldn't fill up a thimble, but I tell you what it has taught me. I'm not tough enough to be a missionary. You have to be tough. You have to be willing to leave a home of comfort and go somewhere where they don't have the things we're so used to having here. And uh, when I think of missionaries, I always think of their wives, and it makes me think of Sarah. What would have happened if Sarah had said, I don't want to go, because the place where she lived was was a very modern place for the time. Uh, in fact, uh, archaeologists have discovered that in the Ur of the Chaldees, they had uh, indoor water. They used the gravity-fed system. They had indoor water. They had things of that nature. It was a... Uh, uh, culture of math and science and things of that nature, and it was up to date for that time. But she left and she went to live in a tent. And that's what a lot of our modern day missionaries, uh, live in places that are less than adequate. And so we appreciate our mission works. Randy has been, uh, uh, doing that work for a long time. The congregation here has been supporting him for a number of years, and, and, uh, we love the opportunity to be able to do that. He operates radio stations in the areas in which he works in the South Pacific Islands. You say eight now? Eight radio stations. They're applying for a license to have more to spread the gospel. has two stations here in the United States, and we're thankful for all of that hard work. And uh, Carl always comes up with the right songs. I'll tell you, I appreciate him for that. I'll send him a topic and a scripture, and he'll have a song that fits to it. And we sang two songs right then that exactly... Tell us what we ought to be doing. Well, the harvest is plenty. We just need reapers. We need people to go bring in the harvest. And uh, we're thankful that, that Brother Randy is here with us tonight. Brother, come speak to us. Well, I want to tell you first how... Very fortunate how very blessed we are to be back in America and to be here with you tonight at White Oak. And in this room tonight are several people who we have known for a great many years and who I can say that are personally responsible for Sharon and I and our family being on the field for a long term. People ask from time to time, Brother English, why have you and your son, uh, family, your wife and your children, how have you all stayed and why have you stayed on the mission field for the great number of years that you have been? And I will tell them it's because of brethren who have encouraged us. Certainly the work is there and needed, but there's a lot of things that pull at you, you know, to come back and to come off of the field. But I'm grateful to say that that's not the case with us because uh, outside of the Lord doing our best to please Him, we've had men and women like yourselves who have encouraged us, loved us, and sent us back out again. And it just reminds me of what I need to do with men and women and families who go to the mission field to encourage them all that I can while I can. And I'm so very grateful to be here tonight. Um, I'm happy to see all of you, and I'm very grateful to see 
my friend, Brother Joe Weir, Sister Truett, others of you have been very, very dear to us, and to meet Brother Rick Owens for the very first time. You may recall the last time that we were here that Brother Rick was out on the field. He was, uh, I believe it was in Indonesia, right? And we met his wife and got to visit with her. And so it's good to meet this man who's laboring among you. And I want to bring you greetings from the brethren in the Pacific. Of course, uh, Sharon and Cassie are with me here tonight. Cassie is uh, one of five children. They were all born and raised on the field. And she's the only one left at home. Uh, they all, the other ones didn't run away. Uh, they actually went to college in the U.S. and, you know, finished up. Two of them have married faithful Christian women, and, and I am a grandfather. <laughs> Finally, after all these years. We have our second grandbaby just a few weeks ago. Uh, Aaron, our son, and his wife had their first baby, and our firstborn son has his baby. So, you know what? There's a lot of reasons to, uh, to be faithful to God, there's a lot of things that pull at us. There's things that pull at you. But in the end, we do what we know that we need to be doing to serve the Lord above. And I'm grateful for that. Most of our Christian life, maybe about 90% of it, has been on the mission field. And uh, it's a great joy to come to you tonight. I look around in this room and I see people who are committed to God. People who are unflinching in their faith people who have given this work a good name, people who are desirous to see that the gospel not only go here, but all throughout the world, which is our joy and our responsibility together. And I think about commitment. I think about what the Bible teaches us about commitment. At the 25-year mark in our work, we began to talk, Sharon and I, about well, what would the years bring to us and what would we decide to do. And we made those decisions, and we made the decisions to continue and to go forth and to open up some new areas in the Pacific Rim. There's over 30,000 islands there. We'll never be able to see all of those places or get the gospel to all of them. But a number of years ago, we decided to try to up the efforts through radio broadcasts. We use good printed materials. They were listening to the radio in the Pacific and still do in a big kind of way. And so we took some steps to do that to enter that particular work and to add it to what we were trying to accomplish in the Pacific. And the Lord above has blessed that effort. We are based in American Samoa, and we're going to show you some photos of home base here in just a second. But as I think about commitment, and I know I'm speaking to brethren who are committed, God has always required a commitment from us, hasn't he? I remember when I first obeyed the gospel, we were taught by the woman and her husband that taught us a gospel, they taught us commitment. And that's why when we came up out of the water, we obeyed the Lord and were baptized into Christ. That's why we understood that we needed to be about the Father's business. I trained for years as an accountant, and I, I really enjoyed that work. But when I became a Christian, I loved being able to serve the Lord. And so, to make a long story short, that's what we began to focus on. And I knew one thing that Kathy and Joe Rosales had taught us when they first met us. Every time we were with that family and they ended studies with us, they would speak about, well, you want to be, if you become a Christian, you're going to want to be committed to God. And I knew, I knew 
when I made that step, and I know Sharon made that step, that same step, I knew she realizes that we needed to be committed 100%. And so when you have that kind of mind and you're a Christian, you know, it's like the old saying, if you pray for rain, you better bring an umbrella because the Lord will just, you know, use you up. And one thing led to the next, and just within a few short years, we arrived in July of 1989 in American Samoa, which would be our home to this day. Commitment comes first in a Christian's life from God. God requires it. When I think about a commitment to God, we obviously think about being committed to Christ. Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of scripture that teaches us about that commitment. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament times. We can look at, for example, Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, why did Daniel not partake of the king's meat and drink? He didn't have to think long about it. He made a decision because he was committed to God. You go a little further and you study about Joseph in the book of Genesis chapter 39. And you read about this young man at a young age in a position of authority and he had a lot of latitude being tempted by Potiphar's wife. And you know, he could have got away with that. But he would not step over that line. He was committed to God and so he refused her knowing good and well that it would cost him dearly. He did that, I'm convinced, because of his commitment to God. And so this commitment stays with us. We see it in other men and women, great men and women of the Bible, Abraham, others, uh, Lydia. We go to the New Testament and start seeing this commitment come out in the lives of these people. I'm so thankful when we read the Bible that the Lord helps us to understand there's neither male nor female in the body of Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. He looks at you and I as the same. He recognizes us for what we are. And he works with us in the way we are and helping us to grow and change. And boy, when we get a hold of his commitment, indeed, we have got a hold of something good. I want to be committed to Christ. I believe these folks you're going to see tonight in the Pacific, as they come to a study of the truth and they obey the gospel, that's exactly what we see. Commitment to Jesus Christ. They do struggle. The church has not been around there for, you know, Hundreds of years, and the church is not as large as it is in some areas of America, but we see people who are committed to Christ. In the book of Colossians 3 and verse 17, there's a scripture that teaches me about commitment. Everything, everything you do in word or deed, do it as unto the Lord. I love to share that verse with people out in the community, here in America or wherever I am. I try to bring that verse to them, and I talk about uh, helping them to come to a point where everything they do, you can do it as unto the Lord. And I, I try, I try hard to do that. And someone says, well, you're, you know, you're working on your car. That, how's that, you know, play in with serving the Lord? Well, you know, if you use what you have for the Lord, then it becomes real apparent. You need to do it as unto the Lord. So everything, you know, Paul teaches us, he taught the church at Colossia, let everything you do be as unto the Lord. You can't help but be committed to Christ without being committed, secondly, to the Word of Christ. The Word of God. What would life be if we didn't have this precious Bible to go to? You know, something, I think some of you have heard this before, but it is quite... Um, astounding to meet up with people. Now, these would be, you know, young people, middle-aged, old people, 
and they have been on this earth for a good period of time, and they've heard about God, and they have obeyed a denominational doctrine, and they don't have a Bible. That's just almost unthinkable today, isn't it? But it's like that. I mean, a man and woman who want a Bible, they they really don't have one. So every time we go into the Pacific, I think Joe and others know this, that you know, we're, we're stuffing those Bibles in the suitcases or I'm putting a Bible program on a phone and try to load it up. We're talking about people who have heard of God's Word, but they've not really studied it. And they're not really encouraged in a lot of denominational works to study the Bible, but of course the Lord teaches them to study. Study to show thyself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So commitment to the Word. Commitment to God's Word is something that comes forth in the lives of these men and women who obey the gospel. The Bible teaches us, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And so this commitment to Christ and to His Word is something that encourages our hearts in the Pacific. These men and women are striving to be what God wants them to be, and yet we have many, many, many who have not even yet heard the truth. Every time we make a trip to an island, we pass up so many islands along the way that if you and I were to stop on that island and say we had a day, well, the first thing we would be able to do is find someone who would study the Scriptures without any kind of question. No, they wouldn't throw you in a boiling pot. Uh, Well, they may in some of them, but they would would have you into their home, their, their humble abode. And that that sort of stings because you know you've only got so much time before nightfall to get off of the sea and get on to the place where you're going, and you've passed up five, ten islands on the way. That's what keeps us moving. We want to see these 30-something million people in the Pacific to get the gospel. And White Oak has sent us out. You depend on us to preach the truth. You depend on us to do that work that you've sent us to do. And we end up seeing this commitment to God and to His Son and to His Word. And then finally, I want to say this. And all of America needs to hold this up high, that we need to be committed to the church of Christ. We have people today that uh, carry the church on a high, high pedestal, and that's where God wants it. We need to come to our friends and neighbors unabashedly, unashamed, and tell them about the church that Jesus built. The Pacific Islanders, when they learn the truth and they're able to open up their Bible, we get them the Scriptures and they show people about the church that Jesus built in the book of Acts. They come into passages over in Roman where the apostle told them, the churches of Christ greet you. And you show them the Bible name for the church, they're excited about it. And they want to do everything they can to tell other people that this is the Bible church. This is the church that you read about in the Scriptures. We need to be committed to the church of Christ. That means that we're going to support the works of the church. That means that we're going to be behind its leadership. And that means that we're going to extend our hand in the work of God. And I'm not ashamed of the church. I've not been a Christian all of my life. Sharon and I obeyed the gospel the same day, Brother Rick. We had been having members that was uh, maybe in their 60s to 80s that were stopping by and seeing us at our home. We were just married, and about every second or third day, someone would come by our house and stop and say, "Uh, Mr. English, would you like to go to Bible class with us? And I'd say, well, uh, 
no, thank you, you know, for asking me. And my wife and I were newly married, and I didn't have much sense then, but I didn't know one thing, that we had to have God in our life or the marriage wouldn't make it. And I feel strongly about that. Thankfully, I knew that much, and I know my wife did. And so we begin to study the Scriptures on our own and open up the Bible, just like many of the Pacific Islanders do. They're studying on their own. But sometimes you have a little bit more than a hard time to understand everything, especially in view of the denominational world around us. And so we started going to different places, Sharon and I, this woman right here. And we would go to all different types of religious organizations. But we never stayed. And we weren't people to hop around and make flippant decisions, but we knew it wasn't right. And finally, it got a little bit frustrating. And it, winter was settling in. It would have been about this time of year, actually. And we just said, that's it. We're going to start reading our Bible together. I don't know if Cassie's ever seen the house, but we lived it. Do you know what a shotgun house is, brother? <laughs> You remember the old shotgun houses? You got room A, B, and C, if you're lucky. And that's what we lived in. And <clears throat> that winter was a little bit cold on us. Um, but we, we just poured more blankets on. It got so cold, I remember in that winter that the shampoo froze in our bathroom. I'll never forget that. I was trying to get it out. And... Uh, and we were, you know, we were newly married, so we didn't mind snuggling up close, but we'd pile those blankets on and keep reading the Bible. I, I, we just, I'd see those days sitting there, and my head was cold, you know, when it'd stick out in the covers, and we'd be reading the scriptures together. And we wanted to do the right thing. I think about these Pacific Islanders that are just like that, minus the cold weather. But then, spring came. And man, we were still at the same spot. And I mean, all of a sudden, one day, a woman dropped by our house to ask a very simple question. And we gave her the answer. And she began to talk to my wife. And she was sitting where you are. She was a member of the Church of Christ. She didn't waver about her faith. She saw a young woman that opened her heart to her, and they began to talk. And it was a few minutes later that I overheard the conversation. I was in the next room trying to make a repair, a bathtub, you, you know, an old clawfoot bathtub. I couldn't get it out of the door, so I knocked a hole in the side of the shotgun house. And I had one end out because it was just me, and those things are heavy. And the other end, I couldn't push it out, so I was working with that, and I overheard, well, there's just one. There, there's just one. And she was talking to her about the church. And the things that Kathy Rosales taught my wife to this very day still stick in my mind. And one thing became another, and I came up front and introduced myself, and the end of that story was about six months later, we obeyed the gospel. And I think about that move very quick from that point. Within two years, we were on the field. We had gone to Bible college for almost two years and then out the door and it's just amazing to see how God works in changing people's lives. Our sons and daughters, our grandchildren, our neighbors, ourselves. And it's wonderful when we see people who will make that commitment because things begin to happen when we truly commit ourselves to God. I want to share some things with you tonight that I hope that will encourage your heart. I'm going to 
try, oh boy, I started to say I'm going to try to keep us on time. I better get with it. But I appreciate your good attention and letting me have this opportunity. We've had some technical difficulties here, and I hope that uh, things are going to hold up okay. Let's see, do I need to turn this on or is it, it's on? Okay. And I just hit the right button? Okay. Let's see if we can do this. Yeah, and I've got the wrong slide there, so I'm going to move to the next one. Okay. It is all about a commitment. And you all have sent us out to do the work of God. Um, This work is, is, I guess I can say, high energy. Uh, Brother Weir and others have been out on the field with us, and they know the daily routines. It's just because there's a lot of good opportunity there. These are the nations that we work in. Each of these nations represent a different number of islands. American Samoa, the first one on the list, that's home base, seven islands. The Solomon Islands, over 350. Um, Every nation has a different number of islands. And so, you know, when you get onto one island like Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands, that place is huge. And you could work a whole lifetime, times two, and never get out of there. So it's a pretty big mandate to, to go into the Pacific Rim. But our elders at Forest Park, they had a plan. And they wanted a family. They wanted a family that they could get behind and who would be committed. And in short, we were considering going to Africa when we ran into someone that knew the Forest Park elders, and we teamed up with that eldership, and we began to go out and raise funds. And we met some of you in the early days, Sister Truett and Brother Ted and and others in the room, Joe. And those are the things right there at that particular point that spurred us on. And within five months, those funds were raised and that budget was out of the way and the elders said, go. They wouldn't let us go until that work was done because, you see, these elders oversee and they had a plan. And so it takes a commitment to going. You've got to literally get up and go in the Pacific however you can. You can drive by a car sometimes. You can get on a plane. But most of the time, you just got to get your backpack and get on it and take off and go to where these people are. It takes a good commitment to other things, uh, like, for example, tools. Let me see if I can get this advanced here. Okay. It takes a commitment to uh, the tools, good printed material, so that you can teach, a Bible, of course. But you, you, even if you do another type of work, a benevolence work, we have this mind that says, do it, but always teach. You know, if you serve someone physically, you really got to take that step and help them spiritually. It's why we're there. It's what God allowed us in the door for, and we don't want to forsake that. So we have a deep commitment to teaching the gospel. And I'm thankful, brethren, that we have this word because I'm telling you what, Brother Rick and I were having a conversation upstairs. So often in our life, it's the only real thing that you can count on. You can't count on people, and, you know, they change a lot. And all these doctrines that you have in the U.S., we've got them in the Pacific but you can count on the Word of God. And so we teach, we go face-to-face. That's what that's all about. And, of course, there is no better formula than face-to-face. And, of course, we teach and baptize. We baptize. The local brethren baptize. We we don't really care who baptized. We, We want to teach a man or a woman. And if they're desiring to be baptized into Christ Jesus, we want to do that right then and there, wherever that may be. This gentleman was in his 40s. He was actually like a refugee from a flooded area. He was staying on a Roman Catholic compound when he heard there was a Bible teacher in the area. And that Roman Catholic compound wasn't being watched by the Roman Catholic Church. But they did allow all these uh, 
people, refugees, to move in and just set up camp on the land. And he heard about a Bible teacher over in the next village. And he came, and the brethren told him, yes, we have a Bible teacher visiting. And he came and brought others. And this man, um, a humble man, he gave himself for a week to study, and he obeyed the gospel. And this is the kind of people that we're running into all throughout the Pacific. It does take good tools. Let me tell you what, those tracks that we have out in the lobby... Or even your bulletin. I could take your bulletin, and it's a marvelous tool because it has good articles in it. It edifies uh, people. It takes good tools to do the work. But even if you just have your Bible, well, that would work. But we're blessed today to have radio, TV, the Internet, yes, printing materials. And we'll tell you more about that. We chose a number of years ago to get into radio because we read an article from a brother out of Nashville And he was an experienced, retired radio engineer. And the article was really simple. He was just simply talking about the the good benefits of radio. And he was trying to encourage the church to be more involved in radio. And so I picked up the publication that he wrote the article for and was headed out the door. And I just stuffed it in my backpack and I read it while I was on the plane. And in short, he was saying, listen, this is a great opportunity for the church. We ought to be doing more. And when I got back home off of that trip, I called him. His name was uh, FM, like radio. That was his initials, but he went by FM Perry. And he was uh, almost in his 80s then. And I told him, I've read your article, and, you know, we're in a country over here, and we would love to be able to do more in radio. The elders had said, well, you can go ahead and have a radio program on the air, Brother English. But when I called them back, I said, how about a radio station? And you know what those men did? They said, tell us what you know. And within a matter of months, we found ourselves applying for an FCC license. Remember, we live in a U.S. territory, so we have to deal with the same FCC that you do. That's a lot of paperwork. (laughs) But we did, and God, he blessed that effort. And our first license came through. And so we had a marvelous tool that we could use then to begin to spread the gospel. The Pacific Islands... The church had a radio station for the very first time in that area of the world, operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, lots of programming. We very carefully screen our programming that goes on the air. One of the early helpers of that was Jim Dearman. Jim was produced a lot of content through the years. And we knew men like him that were sound in the faith. And others, Rod Rutherford. Um, we had good content. Our job was to put it up on the air. And so people began to listen, and that grew and grew. And it takes a family as well. You can't do mission work by proxy. We said, here we are, and you all sent us out. Now, you sent Sharon and I out, and that family grew up a bit. We had our first baby just a few um, weeks, I can say, right, Sharon? A few weeks. I think it was about... She came in. I came in July, 89. She came in August, and I think we had... Well, I know we had our first baby on October the 2nd. So it was a, you know, week. He wasn't due until four weeks later. And that rascal showed up early. He was born, um, I think this would mean a lot more to you women, but he was born in a hospital, like in a screened-in porch. And all five of them, there were no epidurals. You know, you just toughed it out, and I never realized until I... You know, my granddaughter, excuse me, my uh, my daughter-in-law was having a baby. And they were talking about, well, we're going to do this or this. Or, yes, if it's a lot of pain, we may do this. I never really realized, you know, how how much 
it is, uh, if you don't have something like that at your disposal, Sharon had all of our children, and thanks be to God that they were healthy and just things went real well. And so we, we are a family that is committed, was committed, still committed. And if God will give us the next 30 years, then we'll stay committed because that's what Christians do. You want to be committed to a work. It also takes good co-workers uh, by the way, in regard to family, there's what God is blessing us with. The first grandbaby about a year and a half ago. The second one just a few days ago. It wasn't that long ago. And so you see, we're still being blessed to have this wonderful family. We have co-workers, men and women like yourselves. Now, listen, they join us in two spots. One is up in the Pacific, in the Pacific Islands. Uh, they'll get on a plane, fly to L.A., and then usually they come into one, from one or two directions. If you leave L.A., you'll go in through Honolulu and then take a jump down into the Pacific. Or you can come in through L.A. and go to Fiji and then take a jump out to that mission point. Co-workers are with us on the field continually. After the first six months we started, we presented a program to the elders previously. We want to do this work, but we want people standing right beside us teaching and preaching. It's about manpower hours. And so it's not all young people. And it's not all old people, but we have been blessed to use Christians of all ages and backgrounds, faithful men and women, to come in and to help us teach and preach. It's a lot about having those co-workers. American Samoa is our base. It is a beautiful place. I think, you know, we, you know how it is when you've lived in a place for a long time. You probably don't appreciate it as much as you should. Driving over here today, brother, I was looking. I had to drive. Man, the traffic's crazy, but I was looking left and right after I got out of Atlanta, and this is some beautiful country. I mean, the woods and the mountains and the trees, and it's beautiful here. It's beautiful there. This is our home base. It's a U.S. territory. So your U.S. passport keeps you there. You never mess with immigration whatsoever. And so there's some advantages. It's 95 to 97% Samoan people, and it is our home base. The elders at Forest Park were very wise in choosing this as a base. We have three congregations on the island. This is the largest one, over a 100 people. These are indigenous self-supporting congregations. The other two, one of them is about 30, one was 40. But the second one has just recently uh, merged together for the time being. They lost their building, and so we're working to try to see how we can get that back to a different spot. They're doing fine together with the other congregation, but this is an individual work, faithful brethren, uh, sounding in their works, and so uh, we're looking forward to 2019. It'll bring some new opportunities. These are Samoan people that we live among. They're, they're Polynesian, and generally they're, they look just like this. They're, uh, they're beautiful people, wonderful. Sometimes they're larger people most of the time, uh, very strong, and uh, man, they can play volleyball and lift. I tell you, Sharon had a flat tire on the front of our Hyundai, and two women from the neighborhood came, and they, we didn't have a jack. They lifted that car up and changed that wheel, <laughs> changed that tire. Sharon came home, and I said, "How how'd you guys change it?" She said, "They lifted the car up," and so you know they're strong and. And they're resilient and uh, healthy, and, and that's the women. And the men are just as strong, too. So they're, they're big people. They're gentle people. 
And uh, I'm thankful for that. First time I got in a volleyball game, there was a lot of women, and they about killed me. They just had it out for me. You know, I was easy to spot in the crowd. I was the only Palungi. These Samoan people are approachable. They want their children to be in services. Um, it's not easy to win them over, but they are attracted to the Word of God. You don't have to instill that in the mind of a Samoan or a Pacific Islander. They have that. But remember, they've been mistaught, misguided for many, many years. And so you've got to unravel some of that. But we have good success teaching on all levels. And for us, that means children, teens, and adults. And, you know, each of those break down into different age groups. So American Samoa has been a good work base and continues to be. This is the way we get people to services right now, today in the back of a pickup truck. That's generally the way the Samoans move. It's legal there. It's not illegal. I always tell people that picture looks like five pounds of butter in a three-pound can. They're just <laughs> filling over <laughs> our truck. I'm telling you what, Toyota had a recall recently on the frame, and they said, Mr. English, you've got to bring it in. We are going to change out the frame on your truck. Now, any of you men or women that are mechanically minded, you know what it takes to chain out a frame on a vehicle you got to disassemble the whole truck. Our only problem was I knew they couldn't get it back together right. <laughs> but I took it in. They took it apart. And uh, I told Sharon, you know, we're going to have to get a new truck one of these days. She said, you've got a new truck. It's got a brand new frame under it. And so, okay. The Samoans, they, uh, they don't have a lot of transportation. So, you know, part of your work is just like you all would do. If you had someone that needed to come to services, you'd pick them up. And by the way, if it rains, it rains. They just get wet, you know. My daughter Cassie is often back there with them, and she'll get soaked to the gills. Now, look at this uh, attire here. <clears throat> I'm from Arkansas. Men don't wear skirts in Arkansas, but they do in Samoa. The first few weeks I showed up, my coworker, Brother Martin, handed me a lava lava, and he said, Brother English, you want to put this on? This is what uh, we're going to a men's meeting, and uh, this is what they wore. The Lava Lava or the Iafai Tonga or we call it the Sulu in other countries. And you can see it's like a skirt. It just wraps around and you got like a buckle tie there. And we always wear shorts under it. You know, even if I got on a pair of shorts, I'll wrap around my shorts with the Lava Lava. But this is what we wear in the Pacific. It's different, brethren. And that's the point of this slide. It's just the one guy on the end that's upo'o, bald-headed there, he's a detective for a police department. He said, I hope this picture never gets beyond right here. <laughs> people come to the work. It's an important part of the work, co-workers. Not people who are necessarily just here, but just Christians, faithful Christians. Because you're in a world there where you have an opportunity to teach. And let me tell you what, there is no starting age. This is the age to get started. In fact, we start at the upper end of the scale in the 70s and 80s, and then it comes down from there. And people say, well, Brother English, now wait a minute. How in the world can you go out to the end of the earth and expect people like this to work? Listen, it's a civil society. We work in cities. We work in our home island. When we get out to the edge of the earth, I might take someone like Rick or someone that's younger. And Brother Joe has seen some of those work areas like that. And But there's a place for you to work. There's a place for you to constructively and effectively teach with the proper preparation and going. Now, not everybody can go, and that's why we have another word that I want to tell you about in a moment. But when we put together an effort 
um, in the normal course of these congregations, they uh, respond well, whether it's teen classes or a gospel meeting or a workshop. This is part of our Pacific Islands Bible College program. It's a program that now has about 2,600 students. It goes to the student rather than the student coming to a school. It takes a man or a woman about four or five years to complete it. There's 26 courses. These are courses right out of our preacher training schools on the same level, and they're expected to do well, and they have to meet certain stops in the, in the program, and then they're graduated. And so we have that element of training that's needed, very much needed, as we go forth and evangelize. We train them in radio as well. Put these men on the air. Get them preaching in their local languages in addition to English. The Republic of Kiribati is an entirely separate island in a different country. This nation has 32 islands, and they are an independent nation, and it spans the entire Pacific. In other words, from the East Pacific to the West, their, their islands are strung out. And this happens to be a large one here. It's a coral atoll, a very flat island. It's not mountainous. It's very hot there. And we established a congregation there years ago, and we have enjoyed seeing it grow and grow, a very typical home that the Ecuribus people live in. These are Micronesian. Now, that's a, that's a different ethnic group than Polynesian. They're a little darker people. Uh, they are shorter and uh, they live outside a lot. Their homes are open with no no walls in them. They don't have cold weather, so they don't really need them. They don't have storms in Christmas Island. That's why it's named Christmas Island. Captain Cook in the 1700s, he took his ships there, and he put them there during the storm season, and he landed on Christmas Eve and named the place Christmas Island. We have an indigenous self-supporting church there that is full of Christian men and women. And I want to tell you what's happening at Christmas Island now. We, in 2018, we discussed with the local church there, the congregation at Tabakea, about taking the gospel, sending several of their families to an island that's about 300 miles away called Fanning Island. They finally got some air service in there, dependable service. And so this church has a plan to go to Fanning Island and establish, plant an indigenous congregation of the churches of Christ. The teaching begins on all levels. You know, it's just like a once a congregation's established, it's like a wheel that's turning and you come in at any point under an organized effort. You don't put yourself in front of these local brethren because it's an autonomous congregation. And I know every time I do this, every time I go, before we leave, we work with them about returning again. And they'll say, well, Brother England, why are you asking us about the day? Well, they don't always say that because we teach them about autonomy. I tell them, I I can't just place myself over you, so I need to talk to you. When do you think would be a good time? And respecting autonomy from day one. And you know what that does, brethren? It teaches them when someone else comes in that they need to do the same thing. I know myself, and I know what I'm not going to teach, but I don't know about other people. And so you would want that. Ask your missionary what they're doing to help preserve the truth, to make sure that it stays the truth. And so these are things that we do. Their buildings look a little different than ours, but and their benches don't look the same. They don't really have benches. They sit on mats on the floor. That takes a little getting used to, uh, you know, your, your legs, because you sit cross-legged for the most part. So the first few months, the right here on your legs, it gets pretty sore. But when we have an older co-worker that comes with us, they're very respectful and they'll find a chair or two. 
And they set that, you know, right there on the in the assembly, just very quietly, and because they recognize that, you know, we're not islanders. Now, we can do this because we've been with them for a number of years, but it's just a different world. Sometimes after the church is established, we can do medical missions with them. And that's another way of serving. Now, medical missions, I don't know if there's anybody in here that's in health care, but here's the way we try to work with medical missions. It's a great way for the local church that's established to reach out to their community, but with the gospel. So if you're a medical worker, then what we want to do is talk to you about coming on a mission trip and joining our medical missions campaign. And what that equates to is really we'll set up a clinic for about four hours a day. And they'll say, well, I'll work eight hours a day or 12. And we tell them, we know that. But you know what? We also know every brother and sister in the faith, even though they can do that, it's good for them to teach also. And so an hour to set up the clinic, four to run it, and then an hour to take it down. The rest of the time, we're house to house, having a nightly meeting. And every person has an opportunity to teach in some kind of way. We know that's important because, you know, you can take care of physical health of someone. Taking care of their spiritual health is wonderful for them. And guess what? It's good for you and me because that's what we are. We're a people who have been saved to help others to be saved, right? And the New Testament church, brethren, is predicated upon all of us doing something. The model, you know, in in the church of Christ, it won't work if... Your local leaders here, Brother Rick, are the only ones that are reaching out. It just won't work. That's not the model that the New Testament church is built on. It's built on me and you doing something in the body. And so these local congregations, after they're established, you know, we we try to teach them that every person is a missionary, every person is a preacher, a teacher, and these medical missions clinics give them an opportunity to be involved in that together with the team that comes. And this gentleman right here, he was not a Christian. I remember this man. He came and he just went through the ranks of everything, studied while he was at the clinic. We had studies with him uh, days after that and continued. This gentleman obeyed the gospel. Great encouragement to the church there at Christmas Island because he's an older person. And I want you to look at how those two sisters, they got him tagged down there. He can't move left or right. They're checking him out and got a thermometer in his mouth and oximeter on one finger, and I don't know what else. But uh, he got to see the doctor, a member of the church, and, of course, studied the scriptures as well, and eventually he obeyed the gospel. So medical missions is a good outreach. This gentleman here got came to the medical missions clinic in a cart. It has big wheels on it, two wheels, and children were pushing him to the medical mission clinic because he couldn't walk. His leg was really messed up, and the doctor saw him, and Brother Ashley came out the door there, and he looked at me, and he said, Randy, uh, I've done for him what we can do on the knee. This man needs the gospel. And I knew when he said that, that this gentleman, he wasn't going to live much longer. And he studied the scriptures, and uh, not, not that day, but a few days later, he obeyed the gospel, and he lived eight months from that time. But thankfully, he was introduced to the gospel, taught, and he accepted it and obeyed the gospel. We're grateful for that. The Solomon Islands is a different world altogether, a separate nation, got a lot more people, about a half a million in total. The the church that meets there on Guadalcanal in Haniara, an indigenous church, they have elders 
They have their own land now. It's got an old building on it, an old warehouse building, and they keep meeting there inside and out because they've outgrown it. But they have some plans to try to change that. They're going to wipe that building out, hopefully, and build up a two-story because the land is small. They live a block off the main thoroughfare in the capital city, and just hundreds of people every day walk by their building. And man, you can sit out there, you can set up a table or a chair or stand up and give out tracts. People are everywhere. This gentleman right here found us where we were staying. By the way, his name is Benjamin. And he said, I hear there's Bible teachers here. I want to study the Scriptures. And we introduced him to the Scriptures and studied with him and answered his question. Benjamin obeyed the gospel as a faithful man. Vanuatu, another country, yet different. These are Melanesian people. They're very dark people. Very uh, loving people, but they're lost. That's it. Now, the church has been established there in several areas, but they have over 70 islands. The largest number of Christians live on one island. We're able to go into some new areas. We've been going regularly into Vanuatu. There's a missionary that lives there. Uh, that This has not always been the case, but let me tell you, the last thing that we know that he was found teaching the brethren is that these five elements of worship are not absolutely necessary. Now, how's that sound? I mean, he would advocate that we we don't necessarily have to have the Lord's Supper and we don't necessarily have to have it on the first day of the week. In the preaching, by the way, Brother Rick, we can just, you know, we don't we don't have to have that or the giving. Now, he wasn't always like that, but that shows you how men will change, and that's what the local brethren are dealing with. But the local brethren know the truth, and they know how to answer that, and they're doing that. We're grateful for it. We see uh, men and women coming to an understanding and acceptance of the gospel, obeying the gospel, and becoming New Testament Christians. And you know how that happens? Through people just teaching the Scriptures. Men and women like yourself and local brethren, day in and day out, teaching people what to do to become Christians. We were there a few months back, just had a wonderful mission trip out there. We were shorted a number of days because a flight canceled. But even with that, going, teaching the children and young adults. Uh, we saw it uh, last year. We had a gathering in a local village church of only about 30 people. Uh, the congregation was 30 when they had visitors. And we talked to them, worked with them, and said, look, we'll come, and if you, brethren, can do this part, we can do this. And they took it seriously, Brother Rick, and they worked, and they went all through the village inviting people. We had 113 children that showed up for the Bible study. And then, of course, the building was full of adults. One of those men that obeyed the gospel is this man in his 60s. He was a chief of a village. And the congregation was elated to see this man obey the gospel. His wife wouldn't obey. She really put her foot down and said, I'm not going to leave the Presbyterian church. You can do that if you want to, but I, I'm going to stay. And she did. And she wouldn't budge. And so the next time we came back, we had a gospel meeting, and she said, uh, no, I'm not going to go. And her husband came to us and said, you know, Brother Randy, I think if you'll come with some of the local brethren to our home... She will study. And we said, we'll do it. That's fine. No problem. We came the first night, and we had a good study, but the problem was she couldn't get over the idea that there's just one church. And you know how you would know how we're presenting that 
from the scriptures just the way the scriptures does. But she wouldn't accept it. So we were racking our brain and really anguishing somewhat because this good brother, his wife was not going to move, and it's causing some friction here. You know what I'm talking about.